Welcome to Nightmare 365. This is the center of weirdness for the entire planet. There's tons of unsolved mysteries out there. Witches still exist. What about monsters? Do you believe in ghosts? Bigfoot is not out there. Bigfoot is definitely out there. UFOs are real. UFOs might be real. Do you believe in conspiracies? I consider myself a conspiracy theorist. I want to believe in all these case files. Trust no one. The government lies to you. We're just two brothers exploring the unexplained, mysterious, and spookiness that lives among us. What's going on, all you mystery seekers? Welcome back to the Nightmare 365 podcast on the Weird Network. And welcome all the goblins and ghouls that are out there. It's your boy, Matt, recording by myself tonight, kind of kicking it old school. And if you remember, I used to do this show alone when I first started Nightmare365.com. I won't go into too much detail. Greg's not recording with me tonight. And we've been neglecting the podcast a little bit, focusing more on our YouTube channel with the Weekday Weirds, Hometown Haunts, and the stories that we have and our sharing there so make sure to go over there subscribe hit the bell for notifications to follow along to all the weirdness and also visit nightmare365.com for our latest episodes merch page contact information and if you have any stories that you would like to share with us from your hometown or just legends that you grew up with definitely contact us through social media our emails there as well as our phone number 732-660-8893 before we jump in to our main topic, which I'm going to be talking about the 1916 shark attacks that happened off the coast here in New Jersey, which really does hit home because after all, we are the center of weirdness and I feel like everything takes place in the horror, conspiracy, paranormal realm that is Weird New Jersey. And I grew up on Weird New Jersey and they talk about it, the 1916 shark attacks in their magazine. And there's been tons of videos. I didn't grow up on it in the sense that I learned about it at a young age, but as I got older into the teens later on, I started reading about it and had an appreciation for it. And it just kind of every year around the summertime, I always watch a video, a documentary, read an article. There's always something that pops up on the news about it. And recently there's been a bunch of different shark attacks around the United States. So I thought this would be a great time to talk about it. But before we jump in, I want to share some weird news. And I'm trying to feel out kind of how I'm going to do the show solo because I want to do more. I think I'm just going to pretty much share some weird news, maybe dive in like I am a little bit deeper into these kind of things. But I'm not going to explain it. Let's just jump off and dive into some of the weird news that I found recently. This week's terror tale. It's a little gem of ghastliness, I There was an article that came out on Newsweek.com where there was a man accused of murdering his friend said victim called on Bigfoot to kill him. And this happened July 12th of this year. You can't make this stuff up. This article was crazy. It's a weird story. A man accused of killing his friend in Oklahoma on Saturday said he did so because he believed his friend summoned Bigfoot to kill him. Larry Sanders, 53, was charged with first-degree murder for the serious crime of murdering his friend when they were on a camping noodling trip. When they first said noodling, I thought about just sitting in the noodles in in your pool and just hanging out. But then I didn't realize, because I've never done this before, noodling is actually when you go fishing with your bare hands, catching these enormous like catfish and everything like that. And it was just crazy. But apparently they were out doing this, probably having a great time in the river. 
And then his friend said, hey, I'm going to summon Bigfoot to come and get you. The report said Sanders was under the influence, and they believe he was under the influence of methamphetamine based on his behavior. However, a blood test was not taken, which I don't know why you wouldn't take a blood test, because I'm sure he was drunk, among other things. The article says Jimmy Sanders, 53, may face the consequences of first-degree murder if found guilty of Jimmy Knighton's death. This first-degree murder is one of the most serious crimes listed in Oklahoma's criminal code and may be punished by death. I mean, I think he should be punished by death if he killed his friend because he said Bigfoot was summoned to kill him. I wonder if he actually saw Bigfoot before killing his friend of saying, like, holy shit, you actually did summons Bigfoot. You really can't make this stuff up. I thought this was a fake story at first when somebody shared it with me, and I started doing a little research, and it was not just shared by Newsweek, but a couple different organizations. It's crazy to think I could just tell somebody, even one of my good friends, we're out fishing together, and say, hey, I'm going to summon Bigfoot to come get you. I guess this narcotic, you know, or whatever he was under the influence of, is pretty strong to really think and hallucinate that Bigfoot's actually going to come and get you. So I don't know. I definitely give this a stamp of approval, and this is definitely spooky, and it's really more weird than anything else. This next story comes from Weird New Jersey's latest issue, 58, about the MIB took my father's research, and you intrigued me really intrigued me because it has MIB, The Men in Black, and I've been obsessed with this for a very long time. I try to read every article, every book that's written about The Men in Black because I'm intrigued. Are they government officials? Are they aliens? Are they something totally different? I don't know. But this story goes, my dad was a private pilot. He saw something while flying that spooked him so bad that he became obsessed with UFOs. He got to know a bunch of the people who started the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, and he later became friends with Bob Lazar, who we all know from Area 51. As a field investigator of the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, he studied a lot of New York and New Jersey UFO cases. Two days after his death, some government officials, with the MIB in quotations, maybe it was the MIB, or actual government officials, who knows, contacted my mother and took the 16 milk crates of his files, photos, slides, and taped interviews. I found these last remaining slides of his 19 years of investigation that the government failed to take. And there's three, well, pictures of UFOs, two drawings of UFO crafts, and the other one I don't really know how to explain. It looks like just lines in the sky, and there's four of them which is kind of creepy, but MIB, this is another topic I would really love to dive in because I believe that the MIB are real, and I believe that something really is going on with UFO connections and the sightings of the men in black, or are these some type of people that work for a shadow government inside the United States or of the world government? I also like the theory where they could be disguised as humans coming down here and trying to gain some information or knowledge of like what we know. This one's weird though, just because I feel like the government has been releasing a lot of information on UFOs as well as sightings from Navy officials, from the army and all these videos that we see popping up and as well as the Pentagon releasing a bunch of information and they just had a hearing where they said, hey, we want to put an organization where it's easier for people to report UFO sightings. So are they just trolling us? Are they saying, hey, UFOs are real? 
and some people still believe it, some people still don't, or is it something totally different? So I don't know how long ago his father died, and it doesn't really go into a lot of detail in this little article, but I'd be curious. Like, why take his father's information about UFOs when I feel like they are disclosing it? The only thing that I could think of, truly, is if he was friends with Bob Lazar, do they think that he had information about Bob Lazar pertaining to Element 115? That's the only possible explanation I could really see. Like, if this guy was studying UFOs and he kept information and people knew he was studying UFOs and he was part of this organization... You would think that they'd be watching him a little closely, and if he got to something that they deemed sensitive, classified, they would come a little bit sooner than when he was dead. Because once he's dead, where's that information going to go? And no one's going to, I feel like, believe it, unless you're really hardcore into UFOs or you're a believer like us, to say, hey, I have all this information. My dad's 19 years of investigation into the UFOs. Here it is. Like, I'd be like, all right, that's cool. I mean, he has taped interviews. I would love to see if it was Bob Lazar or somebody else. But if they took it, it's like, all right, maybe they try to find something. Was it government officials? Was it aliens themselves? I don't know. This one's strange. And to me, it's definitely spooky. If you have any stories like this or articles that you find, definitely share with me because I love reading them. They intrigue me. They spark you know, my curiosity into knowing a little bit more. I try to dive in a little deeper. So if you have any stories like this, definitely email it or call it in to our show. We're going to take a deeper dive into the 1916 shark attacks that happened off the Jersey Shore and in the Matawan Creek. I think it's only fitting to do the 1916 shark attacks, not only because it's Shark Week, Shark Fests, it's all going on, but as well as it's been brutally hot here in Jersey, and it was brutally hot back in the summer of 1916, and it was noted that this pretty much kicked off the whole craze for sharks, but I feel like we have to give this whole sequence of events its credit. Some of the clips that you're going to hear before I start talking, I want to give this a mention because I thought they did a phenomenal job on just putting together a short version of the 1916 Jersey Shore shark attack, which could be found. I'm going to link it in the show notes, but they did a great job of interviewing people, kind of putting things together. This comes from the YouTube channel, The Spectacular History of New Jersey Shore. On July 1st, 1916, a young man from Philadelphia named Charles Van Zant was vacationing in Beach Haven. Deciding to take a quick swim in the ocean with his dog, as he made his way back to shore, a powerful set of jaws clamped onto his leg. Several men rushed in and pulled him to shore. A shark had stripped his leg of flesh. Attempts to save him failed as he bled to death on the manager's desk of the Angleside Hotel. The first attack happened on July 1st in Beach Haven, New Jersey, and the first victim was Charles Van Zant. He was from Philadelphia and vacationing at the Angleside Hotel 
Charles Van Zandt decided to go down to the beach before dinner and take a swim. He was a 25-year-old businessman who was known for his athleticism, and he played golf and baseball in college. Approximately at 6 p.m., Charles was attacked by a shark about 50 yards offshore. It was then when lifeguard Alexander Ott, who was a member of the 1910 American Olympic swim team, was the first to rescue Charles from the shark. And a little side note is he was the first lifeguard to perform such a duty rescuing a swimmer from a shark attack in American history. It also was reported by witnesses that the shark did not release him until he had been dragged by the rescuers to the water shallow enough where the shark scraped its belly on the sand. 6.45 p.m., Charles was moved into the Angleside Hotel on the manager's desk where he passed away from blood loss. The Angleside was nowhere near the ocean. So when Charles Van Sant was struck by the shark and it got him in his femoral artery, he bled out before they even got him to the Angleside Hotel lobby. There was nothing anybody could do for him, nothing. The Angleside Hotel, which is not there today, it's a Veterans Memorial Park. They redid it pretty much right in front of where it used to stand. And if you look at some of the old pictures of this hotel, I really wish I got this chance to see it because it's no longer there from what it looks like in 1916. Like I said, it's just a park, but there is a hotel, the Angleside Hotel, that does exist there today, but it looks nothing like the original. I kind of wish that was still there so we get some sense of like the history and to actually see where they brought Charles Van Zandt before he did end up passing away from his wounds from the shark. Five days later, and 50 miles to the north, at Spring Lake, an employee of the Essex and Sussex Hotel was attacked by a shark. Carrying off parts of both legs, he died right there in the surf. I feel like the second attack, which occurred on July 6th in Spring Lake, which was about 50 miles north of the first one in Beach Haven, I feel like it doesn't get enough respect, play, information that's been put out there as the other ones from the first day and then the last day that it actually happened. But 28-year-old bell captain from the Essex Sussex Hotel in Spring Lake, Charles Bruder, all reports say that approximately 2.15, Charles joined his friends in the surf in the employee section of the beach. They said he was a strong swimmer. He swam out further than anybody else. He was 130 yards offshore when the attack occurred. When the attack occurred, lifeguards that were on duty took a lifeboat out to rescue him. As they reached him, they said he was screaming and shouting that a shark bit off his legs. They pulled him into the boat and realized that both of his legs appeared to be gone below the knee. Charles passed away from the severe blood loss while in the boat on the way back to the shore. He is buried not too far from where the attacks happened at Manasquan at the Atlantic View Cemetery, which I don't know exactly where the first Charles Van Zant is buried. That's something I would have to do a little bit more digging on. You could imagine how many people were pretty much in a frenzy at this time when not just one, but two shark attacks actually happened. And there's been tons of reports that people on the Jersey Shore started taking precautions of putting nets up, swimming ropes, kind of putting in barriers of saying, hey, you're only allowed in this area, swim out this far. And as well as kind of saying, hey, we're on heightened alert because it was on July 8th in Asbury Park, which is 
really close to Spring Lake. A shark was spotted just outside the swim ropes. The lifeguard captain on duty took a boat out there and beat it with an oar and chased it away apparently. And he said it was about allegedly 12 feet long. I wish we could have some type of time travel vehicle or even just tapes of this, which I know that's not possible, but watch it in real time because I feel like when you hear reports today, there's a lot of noise that gets picked up that is out there that we kind of miss some of these reports. And also, I'm guilty of this myself. I don't think of it, you know, until after the fact or when it becomes like a huge event like these shark attacks where I follow a lot more closely than I do if I was actually living through it, even like today. While all this was going on too, think about the movie Jaws if you've ever seen it, where people, mayors of towns were saying, no, please come down to the Jersey Shore, it's safe, you're not going to get attacked by a shark, it's only, you know, one off, Up, it only happened twice, and there was probably a lot of fear at this time, and I'm sure they did lose a lot of revenue and people coming to their hotels and the beach communities at this, this time, but this was very new, so I could only imagine if we never grew up with this and then all of a sudden this event happened but this is where it gets a little weird and it gets a little terrifying too because the first two attacks happened off the jersey shore in the atlantic ocean this next attack which happened on july 12th happened in matawan and it was in the matawan creek which is inside the bay so if you're familiar with jersey just picture the middle of the state where you see that like hook and then inside that bay not too many big fish you would say would be in the bay because it's definitely shallow in there but many years ago we were fishing right by the Verrazano bridge in the bay there and we did catch a baby great white shark i do remember that as a kid there in the surf six days later and 10 miles inland in Matawan Creek. An 11-year-old boy was swimming with his friends when a shark fin broke the water surface, grabbing him and pulling him under. The boy never resurfaced. When 24-year-old Stanley Fisher dove into the creek to search for him, the shark latched onto him. Managing to break free and drag himself to shore, witnesses were horrified. Most of his thigh had been bitten off. He died of his injuries later that day. Like I said, this is where it gets a little terrifying and it doesn't make sense because the other ones happened in the Atlantic Ocean. This one happened further inland in a creek, which definitely check out the show notes because I'm going to share the Google Maps of where the Matawan Maneater mural is located. And right next to that, if you look on the Google Maps, there's the Wyckoff Dock. This is where the July 12th events happened. And today it's right behind the Matawan Public Works Department. And you could see today the old trestle bridge that brought the train across this creek river, as well as the new Amtrak track that does exist where the memorial of the man-eater shark, which the mural is really creepy in itself. It has 1916 in red, the blood red, and then the shark's mouth that's opened. And if you're looking into this, and if you go under this tunnel, 
it's pretty eerie but that's where the actual amtrak runs over there or new jersey transit track runs over there and i've taken this route many times going into the city i always did think about this like now how hot it is outside when you step out it really hits you and the humidity here definitely hits you so i'm sure they dealt with the same thing i'm like hey the best way to cool off is go swimming and matawan creek was a popular spot for the local kids here in town and it was a deep section where they were swimming nowadays if you ever see pictures or go there it's not as deep it's probably not as wide as it once was and it's just really murky muddy water there is reports that the temperature during this afternoon reached up to 96 degrees. I don't know if they took into account as well as like the heat index. That could be a thing to look into, but 96 is pretty hot. And I'm sure if the humidity was really high, that could play a factor too. I would definitely want to go swimming just like Lester Stillwell did. He was the victim on this day, the first victim of actually three, but one did survive. Out of all the attacks, five in total, four died, one actually survived the attacks that happened. So Lester Stillwell was actually working at his father's Anderson basket factory at the time and he said hey I want to go home I'm sure as a kid back in the day if I was working and it was hot out I would want to go home and swim in the creek with my friends as well he was 11 years old one week shy of his 12th birthday man this this really is a weird and terrifying and this is where like I think the story really changes it's not just shark attacks on the you know the actual ocean this is inland and for people to really think like all right i think we're safe we're inland nothing's gonna happen we're gonna be fine but lester and his friends decide to go down to the creek and go for a swim and there is a side note that he did suffer from chronic seizures due to epilepsy and this just reads out of the movie Jaws as well, because at approximately 1.30 in the afternoon, Captain Thomas Cottrell, a retired sea captain, was walking back from fishing while crossing the trolley drawbridge over Matawan Creek, where he saw a dark gray shape figure about eight feet in length going west up the creek with the incoming tide and he said he recognized it as a shark when he told people about this they said all right either you're just pranking us you're this you're that they didn't believe him at all and they thought he was just making it up and it was also around this time that a motorboat of teen boys saw a shark near a drawbridge the boys in the boat were 18 years old and they said they saw pretty much the same thing as the retired sea captain thomas Cottrell. these reports come from the matawan historical society.org and i'm gonna link this in the show notes too because they give detailed report on exactly what happened what time all these things happened and it says at 145 lester's father lets him leave work early to go swimming in the creek with his friends and then five minutes later captain Cottrell actually runs through town including passing stanley fisher's shop and other businesses shouting the warnings about the shark still no one believed him and around 155 a boat of teens warned lester's group of friends about the shark according to some of the people as well and they all thought it was a joke and lester stillwell and his six other friends went down to the wyckoff dock to go swimming about a half mile east another group of boys were swimming by the brickyard docks which will be another victim later on this day joseph dunn at approximately 205 one of the friends of lester stillwell said an object grazed his leg lester floated to the deep section which the other boys said they saw what looked like a long log in the dark muddy water 
Just a moment later, Lester was attacked by the shark. The terrified boys fled the creek and ran naked up the muddy street, screaming. I like how some documentaries do talk about that, that they were naked, they were skinny dipping. I don't know if that's true. It comes from the historical society, and I've seen it on the other documentaries, so it, it must be true. At approximately 2.10 in the afternoon on July 12th, the boys pass Mr. Fisher's store, screaming that Lester has been attacked by the shark. Stanley Fisher thought perhaps Lester was drowning as a result of knowing him and knowing he had seizures. He immediately left his store with a couple other people, and they were the first three men to actually search for Lester's body in the boat. By the time the men got down there, it was about 30 minutes since Lester went under the water when the kids ran away, but they still didn't believe that it was a shark attack. However, at this point, they all knew that they were not finding Lester alive because he's been under the water way too long, but they wanted to recover his body for the family. All men changed into swim trunks at the time, were diving in, looking for the body, and it was at this point it was reported that Arthur Smith, one of the people that went down there to rescue with Stanley Fisher, was scraped in the abdomen, which drew some blood, attracted the shark again. It is reported that during this time, there is a lot of people that did go down to the creek and were just onlookers, and Stanley Fisher decided to make one last dive to try to cover Lester's body. Some witnesses claim they saw Lester's body briefly above the water surface. As Mr. Fisher pulled him up from below in waist-deep water, the shark attacked him. Stanley Fisher, who had the boy's body, actually dropped it and was trying to fight off the shark, striking it repeatedly in the head. However, the shark took him under the water surface twice and tore a great deal of tissue from his thigh. Stanley Fisher was able to break free from the shark and get to the bank, but he severed his femoral artery really bad. There was a decision that was made to transport him via train to Long Branch Monmouth Medical Hospital for treatment, but apparently the train was two hours away from actually being in the rail station. Little side note, I was actually born in Long Branch at Monmouth Medical Hospital. Continuing with the story, as this is all going on with Lester Stilwell and Stanley Fisher, who've just been attacked, and obviously they did not recover Lester Stilwell's body. At 2.35 p.m., same day, July 12th, about a half mile east from the Wyckoff dock, Joseph Dunn and his friends were swimming. They were swimming by the New Jersey Clay Company docks, the boys did hear yelling, which it wasn't reported who actually yelled shark, but they all quickly tried to make their way out of the creek, which Joseph Dunn was the furthest away from the dock ladder and was the last to reach it. He felt his left leg being bitten and he was being pulled under. His friend Michael and Jerry tried to pull him out, but it quickly became a tug of war. And it wasn't until a bricklayer supervisor heard the screams, ran over and pulled Joseph free. There was also another person there fishing who also jumped in the water to the help. And it was Captain Cottrell who arrived in a motorboat and took Joseph to the Wyckoff dock as they knew there was doctors there tending to Stanley Fisher. Joseph Dunn was driven to St. Peter's Hospital in New Brunswick for further treatment, which I don't know why they wouldn't just drive Stanley Fisher as well to that if the train wasn't coming for another two hours because it wasn't until 5.07 that Stanley Fisher was finally placed on the train to Long Branch. And at 5.30, they finally reached it where he was wheeled into the operating room and they were trying to work to save his life. But he succumbed to his injuries, a bunch of blood loss and shock. And at 6.45, Stanley Fisher was reported deceased. Just a day later, 
on July 13th, possibly both panicked and enraged by the loss of two members of their community. They started putting out all these postings. Even the mayor posted a $100 reward saying, hey, we're going to kill any shark that we see. People started throwing dynamite into the creeks, into the waters, attempting to blast away some of these sharks, also with guns. There's old pictures of people in rowboats with guns pointing into the water, as well as pitchforks and anything else that they could find. And it was on Friday, July 14th, that New Jersey's governor put in a mandate to say that steel wire mesh would be used to enclose all popular swimming locations. And it was on this day, July 12th, that a train conductor spots Lester Stillwell's body in the creek by the train trestle, which you could still see today, which is about 150 feet west of the Wyckoff Dock where he was first attacked. Stanley Fisher and Lester Stillwell were both buried in the Roseland Cemetery, which is in Matawan. And a side note, this cemetery is supposedly really haunted. I've never been myself, and I think we're going to go there and try to do a video. This is a very haunted spot. And I know a couple people who had experiences there. Even though the fifth victim of this shark attack, Joseph Dunn, did survive, it wasn't until September 15th that he was finally released from St. Peter's Hospital in New Brunswick, New Jersey, of his injuries. He did lose part of his one leg. Five attacks and four deaths in 12 days. News of these attacks spread fear and panic up and down the Jersey coast. Beaches closed and bounties were offered for anyone who could kill or capture this man-eater. On July 14th, an eight-foot-long great white shark was caught by a fisherman in Raritan Bay. Inside its stomach, they found 15 pounds of undigested food, claimed to be human remains. There were no more shark attacks reported along the Jersey Shore that summer. There is a lot of debate whether it was the great white shark that was captured and killed and then dissected to see human remains in, or it could have been what people speculate too, a bull shark, which can survive in both fresh and salt water. And the further you get down into the Matawan Creek, it is fresh water. So it does make sense. I don't know at that time and where it actually divides in that creek becoming more fresh water than it is salt water. But it is an interesting theory. There is a couple books that you can check out that I would highly recommend reading if you want any more information on these shark attacks from 1916. There is the 12 Days of Terror inside the shocking 1916 shark attacks. There is also Jersey Shore shark attacks of 1916. And then there's Close to Shore, the terrifying shark attacks of 1916. Definitely recommend reading these. I haven't read them in a long time. And I think I might go back and just listen to the audiobooks for these because they are a good read and you'll get a different perspective and more in depth of what happened at all three attacks. I definitely have my own theories on this. This one is definitely spooky and terrifying, and it makes me think twice about going into the ocean or any type of creek. I don't know which one I'm leading towards more. Was it the great white shark or a bull shark, like a lot of people later on theorize, because it can go into fresh and salt water. But again, no attacks happened after they caught the great white, or it could have been a combination that it was three different sharks. Or 
Was it all just one rogue shark? I don't know. I really don't know if I can make my own opinion or conclusion on this. I like to think of it as it was just one rogue shark. But then again, I don't think we'll ever have the answer to this because it's been 100 years. So I don't know. Let me know your thoughts on this. This one's definitely spooky. I'm giving it a stamp of approval because it has stuck with me for so long. And I still am reading as much information on this case. I just want to say thank you for tuning in to today's episode into the solo podcast. I plan on doing some more episodes like this, so stay tuned for that, but make sure to head over to nightmare365.com for all of our information. And if you have any stories like this that is in your home state or your town, definitely share with me because I'm always interested in these paranormal conspiracies, true crime, and terrifying stories like the 1916 shark attacks, as well as just some weird news like I read at the beginning of this. But make sure to subscribe to us on our YouTube channel, as well as follow along to Scary Story Society, which is another YouTube channel that I'm venturing out reading the scary stories to tell in the dark. And then also the other podcast that we have, which I do air on here as well, but we have our own section because podcasting doesn't let you do series. And I really do enjoy different types of series. We have the Halloweeniacs where we team up with Mike and Tom Piccarella from Jack-O-Lantern Press, and we put out a podcast on Halloween, all about Halloween, every 31st of the month that has a 31st. So follow along to that. And I hope you enjoy all the content that we're putting out because we have plenty more in store. So until next time, stay spooky.